In a major victory for the struggle against racism, the three men who murdered Ahmed Arbery have been brought to justice and convicted of murder. We'll also discuss the emergence of the Omicron variant of COVID due to global vaccine apartheid, the historic victory of the left in the Honduran presidential election, and more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's November 30th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern at youtube.com slash breakthrough news. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, let's start today with this major victory that is absolutely brought to you by the struggle against racism, the conviction of the three men who murdered Ahmed Arbery. Yes, Nicole, this is so important that Travis McMichael, Greg McMichael, and William Bryan were found guilty of the murder of Ahmed Arbery. He was lynched. He was a black man who was out jogging, and he was lynched. Their argument was that they acted in self-defense, which is the argument of all the lynchers, isn't it? that they were always trying to protect the public good. In this case, they were trying to stop a robbery, even though there was no robbery. It was a lynching. And when you think about the history of this country, where white supremacist lynchers have routinely murdered for centuries and have been either exonerated, not charged, or in many cases celebrated, we have to recognize this as a victory for the movement against racism, the uprising against racism that took place following the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis in May 2020. Ahmed Arbery was lynched shortly before that. When you think about how the white supremacist lynchers always make the argument that they're either defending the community or defending themselves, it's quite astonishing, in fact, that a jury made up of 11 white people out of 12 jurors in the state of Georgia, in the Deep South, were able to find the killers guilty. Trayvon Martin's killer, George Zimmerman, used the same argument of self-defense, even though he tracked down Trayvon Martin simply because he was a young black man in that neighborhood where he thought, George Zimmerman thought he had no place, no role, no right to be when he tracked down Trayvon Martin, the jury found that George Zimmerman acted in self-defense because Trayvon Martin committed the sin, apparently, of trying to save himself. Simply put, whenever 
the people who are the victims of the racist lynchers try to defend themselves, they have been routinely criminalized. We saw this again in the case of Kyle Rittenhouse. In that case, Rittenhouse, who came to Kenosha answering the call of fascist militias to come, guns in hand, and the moment that there was an uprising against another racist police shooting, he was exonerated on the basis that you could see clearly, as they said over and over again in the video, that he was only defending himself, decontextualizing why Kyle Rittenhouse actually came to Kenosha with an automatic weapon at the call of fascist militias. When we think about the history here, George Zimmerman, he went free. Kyle Rittenhouse, he went free. But in the state of Georgia, a jury convicted Travis McMichael, Greg McMichael, William Bryan. An amazing sign and something very hopeful, I'd say. Something hopeful that at the moment when the movement against racism has receded somewhat. It isn't at the peak that it was in the summer of 2020. And the right wing and the apologists for the right wing are on the offensive. It's a sign of hope and a sign of strength, like an enduring reservoir of strength from the anti-racist movement that this conviction came about. Remember that the defense attorneys tried to demonize Al Sharpton and Reverend William Barber and other black clergy who came to the courtroom to to sit with the Arbery family. They said their mere presence in the trial room was an act of intimidation. Black people coming together to stand together, along with their supporters in the white community, that that was an act of intimidation. The defense really thought that this reservoir of racism was strong enough that if they appealed to the whites on the jury with this kind of racist appeal, that it would succeed. And the fact that it didn't succeed is a testament to the fact that we are living in a changed time in which there's a growing awareness, consciousness about racism and in opposition to racism. Esther, again, the facts here are important. The prosecutor originally, the police originally, they weren't going to do anything about the lynching of Ahmad Arbery. Let's just remind the audience about what actually happened and why it happened. Well, right. One of the things that was so moving after the verdict last week was the press conference immediately afterward when Lee Merritt introduced Ahmad Arbery's mother and reminded us that it took 74 days after he was murdered, shot to death in the street, for these men to even be arrested. And it was only the determination of Ahmad Arbery's parents, his family, the larger community of activists who were very much involved in a part of the uprising against racism in 2020. You could say that they they kicked it off in a way. They were the kindling before everything really exploded after the murder of George Floyd because Ahmad Arbery was jogging in February, I think February 23rd, when he was shot and killed. And just the facts of this case, this is even before there was video, the facts of this case that this person was out jogging and that he was just shot in the street. There was no evidence of him committing any crime, harming anyone, being armed. And the fact that he was out jogging, there was just this automatic 
outpouring of support around the country for his parents, for the activists in that community who were trying to draw attention to it because the police, the prosecutors really wanted to sweep it under the rug. They didn't arrest these men. They didn't even bring him in for questioning, as far as I know. The more we learned, the more infuriating the whole case became because they weren't even questioned. You know, nothing happened. They were just able to shoot a man in the street and walk away. And then later, of course, we find out that all of the obstruction of justice and interfering in the investigation by the initial prosecutor, I think Jackie Johnson, who was indicted herself not that long ago for her mishandling of the case and discriminating against Ahmad Arbery's family as they tried to seek justice. So if it was not for, as you said, the family, the people in the street, there would not have been any even arrests in this case. And I think that we have a clip that we're just going to play the beginning of the press conference after the verdict last week, Lee Merritt, the attorney for Ahmaud Arbery's mother, and then her, her speaking briefly. 18 months ago, when she learned about the murder of her son, they told her that she would just have to deal with it alone. They told her that there will be no arrest, that there will be no accountability, that there will be no justice. And she made her son a promise before she laid him in the ground, that her mom, his mom, would fight for justice for him. In order to do that, Glenn County had to change. She couldn't find justice in the Glenn County that she found in the year 2000. That's right. On February 23rd, there was a, a prosecutor standing in her way, Jackie Johnson. Wanda Cooper prayed her out of the way, out of office, and she's facing criminal charges herself. When she was looking for justice in Glenn County, she was faced with a corrupt legal system, one that never fully investigated her son's murder, as we learned during the course of this trial. Wanda performed her own investigation. Wanda hired her own attorneys, and she woke up a nation. Can you all join me in just giving a round of applause for this fighting, faithful, frank mother? So that was the scene outside the courthouse on Wednesday after the verdict. And that verdict meant so much, like you said, to people all around the country who who really needed this victory after that Rittenhouse verdict. Certainly, it just gave people more hope and understanding that, you know, when we fight, we win. I think that was the huge takeaway from this. I know I breathed a huge sigh of relief, a sigh of connection and feeling for Wanda across the states, you know, across all these miles. I I knew that she was feeling 
you know, some kind of justice. It's not her son coming back, but it's some kind of justice. And we know the reason that these charges were even brought in the first place. And even before that, the three killers of Ahmed Arbery weren't arrested for months. They were never going to be arrested, like you've talked about, except for the movement, except for there were people in the streets for days, for weeks, for months, demanding that these arrests happened. And they did. And it's just, you know, the Rittenhouse trial was so hard to watch. The process was so hard to watch. It was so rigged. It was just so rigged. But even more than that, I mean, that was meant to send a message to us that we talked about, on, you know, last week. And so it's just an incredible victory, an incredible moment to realize and to see that, you know, that when we do struggle and when we do fight, we do win. Exactly like what you said, Esther. Yeah, I mean, I think this is such a huge victory. I mean, racist terror, which has been such a key tool of social control throughout the history of the United States, has always relied on impunity. The people who perpetrated, the people who carry out acts of violence, even acts of murder, like the three men who murdered Ahmad Arbery, they're able to do so. They feel empowered to do so. They feel confident in doing so because of the long history of total impunity for racist murderers. And that's especially true of the police or people who are functioning as police officers, as these three men were in this situation. And some of them were professionally police officers too, of course. But impunity has always been the central thing. You can get away with it. You know, maybe the laws on the books makes it appear that the United States is a democracy with equal protection under the law. But in its implementation, the perpetrators of this type of lynch law terror have almost always been allowed to go free. And then, of course, that fuels the cycle of violence further and further and further. So the victory of the conviction of these men and in all likelihood, their incarceration for the rest of their lives chips away at that impunity. I think that's so crucially important, just like the conviction and imprisonment of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. I mean, these are really big historic things that are quite quite, quite infrequent in U.S. history. It's testament to the power of the 35 million people, some estimates say 35 million people who came out into the streets last summer. But it's also a reminder that this whole system has to go. I mean, why does it take 35 million people marching in the streets to secure a conviction on something that's so obvious, so clearly obvious? So, you know, lots of reasons for celebration, but I think also a reminder that the whole system's got to go. Yeah, the whole system has to go. And again, Arbery's killers said, look, he was fighting. You know, we had to do what we did. We had, we felt our lives were in danger. Once the fight was on, when he dared to fight, when they said he didn't subject himself peacefully to their citizen's arrest, that's what they called it. Citizen's arrest, even though there was no crime, because he fought, because he tried to stay alive they could make the argument of self-defense. And they were quite confident that with the jury, especially of 11 white jurors, after the, the defense and the judge allowed the defense to strike down uh, so many of the black potential black jurors from that jury pool. I mean, people were asked the question, have you ever been to a Black Lives Matter protest? And if you said yes, that would be interpreted as bias. If you looked at the Confederate flag and you thought of it as a symbol of racism, that would be an indication of bias. And thus the defense would strike you from the jury pool, as opposed to the other way around. Like if you didn't see racism in the Confederate flag, that would indeed be an indicator of bias. 
Or even if you experienced racism, even if you, even if you said you experienced racism as a black person, that you you must be biased. And I also want to remind us that when William Bryant, the third person following the McMichaels, when he released that video, I remember very clearly he released it and he was talking on CNN. He released it with the idea that he thought the video would exonerate them. He released that video thinking that it clearly showed them acting in self-defense and that it would be exonerating. And instead, it really showed their crime that they murdered Ahmad. Right, Esther. I mean, again, the defense, uh, William Bryan, he's now been found guilty. They released this video saying, see, it showed that he was struggling with them when they had a gun trained on him and they were trying to arrest him. His desire to stay alive in any indication of struggle would be a sign that they were justified. And, you know, just think about what happened in the Rittenhouse verdict. I mean, Anthony Huber, we always talk about Kyle Rittenhouse this and Kyle Rittenhouse that. Was he a racist? Wasn't he a racist? You know, of course, Rittenhouse is trying to, you know, dress up his role right now. He says he supports Black Lives Matter and he's not a racist, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, all of this kind of preparation by the lawyers to make him look like a Boy Scout, all of that, you know, is being talked about. But what about Anthony Huber? He's a 26-year-old guy at a Black Lives Matter protest. He sees Kyle Rittenhouse uh, killing somebody already, Rosenbaum, the other one who was killed, and he tries heroically to stop somebody who has an automatic weapon from killing more. And because he tried to take an action to stop additional killings, the argument is made that Kyle Rittenhouse is acting in self-defense. Like, in other words, the only way you can win this argument is if you're either arrested or lynched peacefully by the lynchers. And that's been the whole argument. How many people have been lynched in the United States? Do people in the United States, generally speaking, know the answer to that? Are we taught that in our schools? Are our children taught that? Like seven to 8,000 people that we know of were lynched, almost all of them black in the United States, seven to 8,000. And that doesn't even include all the people who were lynched by the cops, who were, you know, we just don't even hear about what actually happened to them. This was before, of course, video or body cam coverage. In other words, without the video that William Bryan released, it's very likely that his killers would have gotten away with this lynching. I mean, this is the real history, and it's kind of gross and disgusting that people are rising to the defense of Kyle Rittenhouse or, you know, the same logic should have been applied then to George Zimmerman, who killed Trayvon Martin because he dared to try to stay alive. Anyway, by the way, how many times did the U.S. Congress decide not to pass an anti-lynching law? Do we know the number of times that the Congress said no when especially the small minority of black legislators tried to put on the legislative docket a bill making it illegal to lynch? That would be 240 times that the U.S. Congress voted no on anti-lynching bills. And if you can't pass an anti-lynching bill, you can't call the government that does that a democracy. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, we've had so many mass shootings at schools, at workplaces, you know, in crowds, in in all types of places over the last you know decade or more, a lot really recently. and. 
periodically there have been people who have been called heroes, who have gone out and tried to face the gunman, tried to get the gun away. Those people have been rightfully called heroes. Those people have put their lives on the line to save others. That's exactly what happened. That's exactly what Huber did. That's exactly what this brave 26-year-old did. I just, I really wanted to echo that comment, Brian, because I think that's such a good point and, you know, not even remotely a part of the analysis that's happening in the media. Yeah, nobody knows his name. I mean, why don't we know Anthony Huber's name? He tried to protect people who were demonstrating against the killing of Jacob Blake, and he was shot dead. And instead, people who are defending Kyle Rittenhouse say, oh, he was a perpetrator of aggression against Kyle Rittenhouse because he tried to stop him. Anthony Huber wasn't trying to kill people. He was trying to stop people from being killed. Right. And, you know, this just reminds me, I keep seeing this happen where people even who are supposedly on the left take on the talking points and the the whole narrative of the right and even the far right, because the judge in this case said that Huber could not be called a victim, but he could be called, if the defense could prove it, a rioter, a looter or an arsonist. And by erasing him and not having his his name and Rosenbaum's name and not to have them kind of recognized for why they were out there as protesting for social justice and for human rights, it just diminishes all of us. And I think that it does a real disservice for our whole movement. And I kind of relate that to all the things that are happening right now on Capitol Hill in D.C. in terms of one congressman calling, referring to Ilhan Omar as a as a possible suicide bomber. This really ugly anti-Islamic trope and how Gosar put out a video, you know, an animated video depicting him murdering Ocasio Cortez. So these things are allowed to go on on the right. This demonization, this erasure, this really ugly, violent type of rhetoric is allowed to go on. And a lot of the left, so-called left media does not stand up for people in the path of this type of rhetoric. And I think that when we don't do it, It really diminishes us all. It endangers us all. It normalizes the type of violence and violent language that eventually will catch up to even the people who think they're so safe and think that they can kind of like be friends with fascists and not stand up to them. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think this is so dangerous what happened in the Rittenhouse trial. I mean, just like just like the victory in the trial of Ahmad Arbery's killers chipped away at impunity. I mean, this ruling uh, in the Rittenhouse verdict greatly gave a boost of energy, a boost of confidence to these, you know, far-right fascistic militia types. I mean, these are kind of different strains of U.S. fascism too, right? There's the kind of Southern vigilante, lynch law, white supremacist strain. And then there's the like militia, quote-unquote, patriot strain of fascism that's that's always been strong in the upper Northwest where Rittenhouse is from and where Kenosha is. And those people were paying extremely close attention to this verdict because it sets legal precedent for what they're allowed to do when they organize themselves in these paramilitary organizations to go out and terrorize. And now I'm afraid, you know, with increasing frequency, murder their political opponents in the name of, quote unquote, law and order because they can say, well, we're functioning as an auxiliary, essentially, to the police force. We're protecting businessmen. You know, we're abiding by the law. And if we feel threatened, 
just like Kyle Rittenhouse, we can kill two people, almost kill three and walk away and get away with it. And so I, I think that really opens the floodgates to violence. And those those people who, you know, may consider themselves to be on the left, but who are echoing, uh, like Esther saying, these right wing talking points. I mean, those people are not going to be immune from these right wing paramilitary groups either. I mean, they may seriously, seriously grow to regret what they're doing. Unless they become part of them. True. I mean, when you look at fascism, and it's different in different countries, but one need only look at, say, classical fascism in Germany, Nazism, or Mussolini's fascist forces in Italy. There was a lot of crossover, in fact, from sort of left rhetoric, anti-establishment rhetoric, anti-capitalist rhetoric, amplified by fascist forces who were trying to win over discontented elements from the petty bourgeoisie, from the middle class, and even from parts of the working class who were angry at the establishment and trying to draw those forces into what on the surface sounded like an anti-establishment campaign. When you read Nazi literature, the Nazi literature was very anti-banker, anti-capitalist, anti the talk about the, the vultures, the capitalist bankers. And then, of course, that morphed into the Jewish capitalist bankers. So then it became not all the bankers. It became the bad bankers, the Jewish bankers. But anyway, at the beginning, a lot of that rhetoric sounded very left wing. The Nazis called themselves the National Socialist Party because they were taking advantage of the anti-establishment feelings that existed among the working class and middle class in Germany following World War One. The fact that some people on the left look at some parts of the ultra right or right wing and say, oh, look, they're anti-establishment. Or they even think Tucker Carlson because he says something here or there against this or that part of the U.S. foreign policy, that he's somehow the friend of the left. You know, no, that's not accurate. What ends up happening here by muddying the waters, by thinking that the left, the progressive, the socialist, the anti-imperialist, the anti-racist have something in common with the right wing because we're, quote, against the establishment together, that's a recipe for disaster. And one need only look at continental Europe before World War II in the Depression when social and political crisis were at a height to understand the dangerous character of this kind of bad thinking from certain parts of the left. And I don't think there are parts of the left that are rooted really in the struggles of our community or the working class. I think they're largely online. But nonetheless, they occupy space. But let's not flirt with the ultra-right. Let's not flirt with the white supremacists. Let's, in fact, stand together, build a united front, black, white, Latino, Asian American, Native American, gay and straight, LGBTQ community, all parts of the working class movement to stand as one against fascism. And to also understand the old labor slogan, an injury to one is an injury to all. When you see a white supremacist like the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, the Oath Keepers, or Kyle Rittenhouse, even though he's trying to masquerade now as something different, taking up arms against the righteous struggle of the people in opposition to racism or police killing, we have to stand together. I totally agree with what you're saying, Brian. And, you know, when we started preparing for the show, I, I thought of something else. I, I started to liken this tendency, this trend of people to kind of 
want to characterize people like Rittenhouse or even some of the people who who rioted on January 6th as kind of like the working class, okay? These people are part of the working class, and so we want to stand with them and even want African-Americans, people of color who are targeted to stand with them. It makes me kind of think of how some of the anti-apartheid movement looks at Israel. So, you know, the the phrase progressive except for Palestine. (laughs) So I I started to think of a lot of this movement as like progressive except for racial justice because they want me, they want other black people to just, I don't know, link hands with like fascists or white supremacists because they are part of the working class. Um, No, I I think that, you know, it has to be a multiracial, anti-racist, anti-imperialist movement. And that, for me, it doesn't mean finding common cause with Kyle Rittenhouse, who came to Kenosha to fight against people standing up for Black Lives Matter. I mean, what kind of sense does that make? It doesn't make any sense for me to link hands with people who came, those who came on January 6th, not all did, who came for anti-democratic purposes and to basically, you know, with a white supremacist agenda. Yeah. And I want to just say one more thing, since you mentioned January 6th, and as we have endlessly promised our audience, we're going to do a deep review of January 6th. This is not that. But, you know, one thing is some of the people, again, a few voices presumably on the left or formerly on the left, I don't know what which it is, uh, saying, well, you know, these people were well-intentioned. Some of them, they're being overly charged. It's, it's unfair. Or maybe they were just clowns or they went along for the ride. Yes, that's true in large part. A lot of the people who were there on January 6th had no intention of carrying out a seditious you know, violent overthrow of the government. They did want to overturn the election outcome. They were supporting the president. Some of them, whether they believed it or not, maybe some of them were just taken in by Trump's lies that he actually was the winner of the election. But if you focus your attention on January 6th about some of the clowns who were in or around the Capitol building, if you focus your attention on the rank and file rather than the generals, the real leaders the real people who directed the January 6th movement, which was Donald Trump himself and Giuliani, you know, and the others who are part of that entourage, then you miss the big picture. What was Trump trying to do? Trump was trying to use the fascist movement, use the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, and the very, you know, whipped up right wing base in the Trump campaign to forcibly overturn the election outcome in 2020 so that he could remain president. And if people on the left or so-called left or whatever think that it doesn't matter to overturn even the semblance, the basic norms of bourgeois democracy, then again, they have to be you know, going through their political life with their eyes closed. These things do matter. We have the evidence and the indications of what happened in continental Europe, in particular, before World War II to see just how dangerous that is. And in the United States, as Huey Long said, fascism will come wrapped in the American flag. It won't come with a swastika. Maybe it'll have some, you know, residue or remnants of the white hood of the KKK. But, you know, it'll dress itself up. Fascism won't come as it came 100 years ago or 70 years ago in Germany. It'll come in a different guise. But the idea that late stage capitalism, which is in crisis, unable to solve its own problems, a diminishing empire, 
stoking the flames of white supremacy and racism uh, isn't a danger to basic democratic rights, especially, as you pointed out, Esther, the people who have been historically not only part of the working class, but the most oppressed part of the working class, you know, the black working class, the working class that was the basis really for the creation of capitalist profits, the unpaid labor of kidnapped Africans, as if you know, when you're thinking about progressive movements and the role that black people have played in America, and you can say, but no, wait, we want to make a common cause with Tucker Carlson, or we want to make common cause with the January 6th rioters. That's the real united front. And that means to say to the black community, to the black working class, to that part of the working class in America, which has been the vanguard for all movements for social change, we don't care about you. You're not really important. You're not central to this struggle, which is not only reactionary, it's completely false when, when one takes any kind of objective look at American history. I mean, I'll just stop with this. The civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s was the thing that gave became a lightning rod for the anti-war movement, a lightning rod for the women's movement, a lightning rod for the LGBTQ movement. In other words, it's the struggle of the black community in particular that has been a detonator for all progressive social movements in America. And these voices on the so-called left who say they don't matter, the black community doesn't matter, but we do care about what Tucker Carlson thinks or what the people who watch Fox News think, that's not only a dead end, that's taking the progressive movement and driving it directly into the cemetery. Right, Brian. So I think that one of the things that I think that we can take away from this segment, you know, which initially was just about Ahmaud Arbery, is to like maybe we can end, at least include in every show, like something that's a people's victory. And that might be a way to keep alive the kind of spirit of fight back instead of, you know, just kind of allowing ourselves to be constantly, you know, uh, taken up with these right-wing talking points and this rightward drift of so much of the punditry. I think that's an excellent point. Having said that, Esther, I want to say one more final point. <laughs> okay. And, and that is, you know, I think when you, at least when I was able to see some news accounts of the reaction of the community in Georgia to the verdict in the Ahmed Arbery case, there was such a sense of, of joy and celebration, not because it's, you know, ultimate justice. I mean, as Nicole said, Ahmed Arbery's one and only life was taken from him. And there's nothing that the jury can do or the trial can do or anyone can do to give him his life back. His life is gone. But the joy and celebration was the sense of hopefulness that exists in that community because people could see and think and feel that, you know, a jury made up of 11 whites and one black juror could come up with a guilty verdict for this lynching under these circumstances, under these political circumstances. That's a hopeful sign. And again, the hope isn't just because, like, you know, some people say, oh, it means black and white people can get along or white and black people can, you know, be friends or anything like that. It's based on solidarity. It's based on the solidarity that was forged, which then changes consciousness, that helps 
chip away at or destroy the edifice of racist consciousness that has been so dominant in America. So the joy of the community was the joy, not because it's the final battle or the final victory or because we can bring him back. It's the joy that means that there's hope, that when there's hope and people feel that what they do can make a difference, then they fight. If you feel like there's no hope, people tend to not fight. They look for personal salvation elsewhere. But our salvation, the collective salvation in the struggle against capitalism or racism or any oppression is in the struggle of the people. Anyway, I agree with you, Esther. Let's keep reminding ourselves and the audience weekly in every show that this kind of victory is, in fact, the consequence of people coming together, the collective power and strength of the people. Let's go on to another story, big news and contradictory news. And we have to be able to look at the news and sort of parse it about the discovery in South Africa by South African scientists of a new variant of COVID-19, the Omicron variant. The Western governments immediately, once the South African scientists announced that they had discovered a new mutation, a new variant of COVID, stopped travel from South Africa coming, say, to the United States. Even though we now know that Omicron is in many, many other countries and with greater number of people who we know already are affected by it from countries, say, in Europe who are not, don't have their travel banned to the United States, the travel restriction I guess was designed to say the Biden administration was doing something. But anyway, this is a big and ominous sign, but one that's pretty predictable given the fact that so many people in South Africa and so many people around the world are still subject to COVID-19 and are still unvaccinated. Right. So we know this story about this new Omicron variant of COVID-19 is quickly evolving. It was first identified and announced by researchers in South Africa last week. And it seems like right away the U.S. placed those bans you mentioned on travel from South Africa and other African countries. While we know these kinds of quick bans were not placed on the U.K., for example, in the early months of COVID. And we know that most of the early cases in this country came from Europe. So the stock market plunged. Japan is now banning all foreign travelers. Australia is delaying its reopening. Meanwhile, since Scotland and Portugal and and other countries have also found cases of Omicron, you know, but this tactic you mentioned of banning travel from Africa has pointed to the lack of what we know as an effective COVID policy here in the United States. We've been talking about this like almost since the start of the pandemic. And, you know, experts quickly pointed to the fact that it is much smarter to share vaccines and vaccine technology with places like South Africa that have the technology to produce a vaccine rather than to ban people. Because as long as most of the globe most of Africa is not vaccinated or given assistance to stop the spread of COVID, it will continue to develop new mutations and possibly very dangerous mutations. So I want to play a clip by Dr. Ayoade Alakija. She's co-chair of the Africa Union's Vaccine Delivery Alliance. And she was speaking to the BBC about the new variant, the bans, and really what it means from an African perspective. 
Well, I'm pleased to say that joining me now live from Abuja is a co-chair of the African Union's Vaccine Delivery Alliance, Dr. Ayoade Alakija. Uh, Dr. Alakija, thank you for your time. Do you feel that this was inevitable in some way? Thank you, Philippa. It was absolutely inevitable. And may I say firstly that had the first SARS-CoV virus, the one that was first identified in China last year, originated in Africa, it is now clear that the world would have locked us away and thrown away the key. There would have been no urgency to develop vaccines because we would have been, it would have been expendable. Africa would have become known as a co the continent of COVID. What is going on right now is in inevitable. It's as a result of the world's failure to vaccinate in an equitable, urgent and, 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 and speedy manner. It is as a result of hoarding by, by high-income countries of the world. And quite frankly, it is unacceptable. These travel bans are based in politics and not in science. It is wrong. Right. So that's Dr. Alakija with the Africa Union's Vaccine Delivery Alliance. And, you know, she's very angry in that interview. And it reminds me that there's another story in the Washington Post on Sunday pointing out that South African researchers identify this new variant, even though they are only able to sequence 1% of their coronavirus samples, right? And that means that these researchers and South Africa, working with a small fraction of the resources of scientists and richer capitalist countries, identify this new variant first. And given how it has already been detected in other countries, it does not even mean that the Omicron started or originated in South Africa, right? So we've talked to doctors. I've I've spoken to, for example, on on the ground with Dr. Margaret Flowers about the fact that the United States still is not testing regularly and is very low on the list of countries actively sequencing coronavirus samples like they did in South Africa. So we don't know what is here, what variants or strains and the impact on the population. We, we really don't know what the impact is here. And then I'll finally, I'll say that on Monday, President Biden gave a press conference seeking to reassure Americans that the new variant should be a cause of concern, but not a cause of panic. And he's saying this even though his own researchers say they still won't know enough about the new Omicron variant for two weeks. But still, he said, he did not believe new lockdowns or shutdowns would be necessary and that this country intends to fight the new variants with getting more people vaccinated and with more people getting these booster shots. And he also said with more testing. And that made me think that perhaps, you know, they are finally his administration may finally get this country caught up in having more testing and more contact tracing. But given how we can't even get, you know, funding for better health care and other needs in this country. There was no mention of any budget for that. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the reaction of different countries to the emergence of the Omicron variant of coronavirus, it says a lot. And the United States and its allies are on the side of essentially, you know, hunkering down, letting everybody else around the world figure out their own problems. And as long as the U.S. pharmaceutical companies are making money and, you know, the airports are closed in the U.S., which is not actually the case, but, you know, this is the line of thinking. Let's just look out for us. And those countries, I think their global standing is going to take a real hit from this. I mean, this type of just abject cruelty and the enforcement of vaccine apartheid, where so much of the world has extremely, extremely limited access to vaccine doses that it's very conducive to the development of these new strains of 
the virus. So that's obviously the camp that the United States is in. And I think their international reputation has and will continue to take a hit because of it. China is doing something completely different. In fact, yesterday, President Xi Jinping, when he was taking part in a summit between African leaders and Chinese leaders, announced that China would be donating 1 billion vaccine doses to countries throughout Africa. 1 billion vaccine doses. Prior to that, China had already pledged 200 million vaccine doses, so 1.2 billion doses overall. And 1.2 billion is actually also approximately the population of the continent of Africa, too. So, I mean, this is a really major contribution that China is making. And I think just like the United States is showing who they really are, a lot of countries are going to remember that China was the one who really came to their aid. And China also, in prior months, at least before the Omicron variant arose, you know, was getting all these calls around the world. Well, you have to loosen your border. You're being way too strict. But a recent study just came out from China's Center for Disease Control and Prevention that showed that China could face more than, and this was before the Omicron variant came out, this, that China could face more than 630,000 coronavirus cases a day if it dropped its zero tolerance prevention measures and then, and, you know, lifted some of these curbs on travel. So just one more time, this study showed that China, if they were to be less stringent about the coronavirus, which, you know, they've done so well with that, there are fewer than 5,000 deaths in a country that is, you know, much, much bigger, many times bigger than the United States, that if they did lift those, they could face more than 630,000 cases a day. In the meantime, the U.S. has lifted its travel bans and only put them back into place with just a couple of countries at South Africa and a couple of others around them. But it's still, for example, one of the biggest things is a vaccine mandate, which is spotty around the country, a mask mandate, which is spotty around the country, and easy access testing. Those are some of the best things, along with travel bans, along with you know some of the other things we know about, to actually deal with the coronavirus. So not only is China actually protecting and helping protect people on the African continent, they're protecting and helping to protect people within China. And when you contrast it with the United States, I mean, the United States still doesn't even have affordable rapid tests. There are rapid tests available now, finally, but they're $24 for two of them. Whereas in Germany, it's less than a dollar per test. In Britain, you get 14, at least 14 tests for free. That just shows that Britain is communist, obviously, <laughs> Nicole. Right. I mean, that's you're saying that in jest, but I think your point is good that, you know, it's very clear when you look at these other conservative, developed Western, quote unquote, democracies, you know, these are capitalist countries and they're making sure that their people can get tests for less than a dollar. Only in America would providing health care for the people, adequate healthcare be considered a left or right position in, in the United States, an extreme leftist position that the government should actually make sure that people have healthcare. Exactly. And the, you know, quote unquote, leftist party that's in office, the Democratic Party, the head of the Democratic Party, President Biden, announced that pharmacies would sell these rapid COVID tests at cost for three months. They would be up to 35 percent cheaper that was in September, and they are still $24 for two tests. That's the cheapest one you can get, Binax now. And for a long time, as anybody who's listening to this in the United States knows, it was impossible to even find them in the first place. I mean, this is just one of the easiest, easiest things that the country could be doing. You know, I want to say a, a word or two about China. China has 1.4 billion people and about 5,000 COVID deaths. The United States has a population that's one quarter the size. 
and it has 750,000 deaths. You know, soon it'll be 800,000. China's a poor country. The Chinese government, led by the Communist Party of China, said, we're going to have zero tolerance. We're going we're gonna to wipe out COVID. Now, it's important for Americans who know so little about China to understand the reality of what would happen in China if the Chinese government had pursued the same destructive failed policies that the U.S. government did. China is a poor country. It's not only four times bigger than the United States. The per capita income in China, per capita income, is $9,800. People think, oh, China's an economy that rivals the U.S. Yes, in aggregate terms in some areas, but China is still a poor country. It's a developing country. At the time of the revolution, you know, the life expectancy was in the 30s, and a million Chinese died every year of starvation. Now, here we are in 2021. China has grown tremendously. It's got so many things going for it. But still, the per capita income in China is a fraction of what it is in the United States. If China, as a poor country, had pursued the same policies as the United States, there would be millions of Chinese people who were already dead. I'm saying this in a non-hyperbolic way. Millions of Chinese would be dead. And the government has maintained a policy only 5,000 Chinese people died. When people rant and rave about vaccine mandates or masking mandates, isn't the right to live like fundamental to political rights, to social rights, to economic rights, to human rights, to be alive as a human being? If China had pursued the same policies instead of having this strict zero COVID tolerance policy, all of those millions of Chinese people would have lost everything. So I say when we look at the American failures, the capitalist American failures, and look at what China did, you don't have to say China's a model for all things. You don't have to say we're the followers of China, we're the camp followers of the Communist Party of China. You don't have to say any of those things to recognize the objective reality that because China, a country four times as big as the United States, did not suffer as the people in the United States have suffered, you have to salute the government for having done the right thing. Right, Brian. Well, the researchers in South Africa have said that the effects of Omicron seem to be mild and that it has mainly been detected among young people. But still, the researchers here, I heard Fauci on a few cable news shows saying that it will be at least two weeks before they can make some kind of determination about the variant here. But it doesn't seem like it's a variant that is having the kind of impact, for example, like Delta had in India. Yes, yes. Let's go on to another story. Nicole, we have what's called the federalist system, meaning the states in the country have sovereignty, except in some areas, like the federal government has the right to raise taxes, regulate interstate commerce, raise an army. But the states, the 50 states have sovereignty. And we can see how this federalist system in the context of a already nationwide system of white supremacy and racism has been used to deprive basic rights to human beings. I'm in this case talking about the case of Kevin Strickland in Missouri. Let's just tell the audience about it. 
Kevin Strickland was in prison for 42 years since he was 19 years old. And one week ago today, a judge confirmed that he has suffered Missouri's longest known wrongful conviction. He was wrongfully convicted. He was framed by cops. And he spent 42 years in prison from 19 years old until today. He is not alone. There are thousands of people in this country who have spent days, months, weeks, decades behind bars, some in solitary confinement, all, you know, pulled away from their families, their lives completely turned upside down, who were actually innocent, who actually did not do that, who, you know, did the crime that they were committed for. Kevin Strickland was prosecuted and convicted in Missouri, and he is now being released. And he's now told, he told a local paper that he plans to stay with one of his brothers for a short time. And during an interview, he essentially said, he said, I I have so little, I might use a cardboard box, quote, to get up under a bridge somewhere. The reporter asked him in the interview, are you being serious? And Strickland said, quote, I mean, what do I have? If they would tell me to roll out now, they'd take this wheelchair. I'd have to crawl out of the front door. I have nothing. I have nothing, unquote. I mean, this is a man, an elderly man now in a wheelchair who spent 42 years in prison since he was 19 years old. He is being released. But the kicker here is that he's not going to receive any compensation from the state for framing him, for indicting him, for prosecuting him and for locking him up wrongfully for 42 years. He will receive no compensation, no money, no nothing. He will walk out with nothing. And the reason for that is that Missouri prisoners who are able to prove their innocence, but are only proving their innocence through DNA testing are entitled to money. They're entitled to compensation for their time behind bars. But if they don't get DNA testing, which, you know, using common sense, you can think about how 42 years later, there might not be DNA left that's available, you know, to be tested, which we know happens a lot, even if, you know, investigators or cops even went to the trouble if they were you know, not caring or framing somebody, even if they went to the trouble to collect it in the first place. And then even if you do qualify based on their rules for compensation for, again, in this case, 42 years spent behind bars for something you did not do, even if you do qualify, the payments only come out once a year without interest and they stop. Those payments stop if you die. So your family who was essentially possibly impoverished based on you being in prison, they certainly your, you know, your potential salary was taken. The other component here that I think is so important to acknowledge is that, yes, this is the case in Missouri where there is a compensation law and you are able to, you know, if you fit, if you fit all these requirements and if you, you know, had this exact kind of, you know, testing and results and that was the way that you were able to prove your innocence, you can be compensated. But there are actually more than a quarter of U.S. states have zero compensation laws whatsoever. And in those states, since 1989, there have been almost 300 wrongfully convicted people in those 14 states who have either, you know, not been able to get compensated at all, and that's, I'm sure, the majority of them, or the way to get compensated in those states, the way to get, you know, paid for the years that, you know, of your life, the one life you have taken away, you have to get a representative in that state, in that state Senate or state house to write you a bill and get it through the legislature, (laughs) The federal standard, by the way, is $50,000 for every year that you were incarcerated, you know, once you've proven your innocence. I mean, this is just the most disgusting thing. Like, 
it really proves what the criminal quote unquote justice system is for. It it's for, you know, locking people up. It's not for actually trying to rehabilitate people or actually trying to, you know, provide justice for people. It is clearly for the purpose of locking people up because otherwise this is the worst thing that so many people could think of. I mean, this is a horrendous thing, depriving someone of their liberty for decades. You know, this is incredibly horrendous. 42 years is longer than many countries would ever incarcerate anybody, even who was guilty of some heinous crime. And this is someone who was innocent. It's so important. You know, most people who are brought up on charges go to prison and they go to prison without a trial. More than 90% of the people who are brought up on charges don't go to trial because they don't have money. They don't have money for a good lawyer. The government has endless resources. You don't stand a chance. You know, maybe once in a while you win, perhaps, if you have a lot of money behind you, if you're Kyle Rittenhouse. Okay. But most people don't have that. And they go to prison and they cop a plea to some set of charges. And then if you do go to trial, the conviction rate in federal courts is about 98%. So that's why people plead guilty rather than risk everything at trial. Since 1973, 186 former death row prisoners have been exonerated of all charges related to wrongful convictions that put them on death row. Now, that's just the people who the Innocence Project and these other, you know, good Samaritans and social justice activists and social justice lawyers have fought for and proven against all odds. There are probably thousands or tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, perhaps, of people who are innocent, who are in prison. 186 former death row prisoners were exonerated because of the work of the Innocence Project and others just since 1973, just in the past 48 years. And it just shows that the criminal justice system is the criminal injustice system. This is a police state. Once you're in the system, you can't escape its clutches. And it's so powerful that whether you're guilty or innocent, you're going to basically cop a plea hoping that you know the worst does not happen to you. That's the reality. And then here we have states like Missouri, which only allows compensation if DNA was the thing that released you in the rare event that you are exonerated, even though you're innocent. And then all these other states, Nicole, that you're telling us, no matter what, you'll never get a penny from the state. Again, you can't have these kind of systems in place and call this a democracy. Absolutely. And it just reminds me that the system of mass incarceration here is really a product of kind of post-slavery here, that it was meant to keep people in bondage so that they could basically work, so that they could provide free labor, and that you could still actually technically be a slave as long as you were in prison. And I just wanted to say in the vein of kind of people power, again, that we're talking about, is that I have to be very moved when I look at GoFundMe, which was set up by the Midwest Innocence Project for Mr. Strickland, and it's already raised more than $1.6 million from people all around this country, all around the world, who are giving their individual donations to make up for the fact that the state would not do 
what is just and right for him. And their goal was 1.75 million and they've already raised 1.6 million. And if you go down on the page of the GoFundMe, the comments from people, one says, I hope this small gesture helps to right the terrible injustice served upon you. I pray that God's goodness and the kindness of others will be at the forefront of everything and everyone you encounter in your life. It's just, wow. Yeah, that's really powerful. Esther, this is incredible for so many reasons, especially, you know, when you talk to people about how we create a better world, when you, you know, there's so many people who say, oh, well, people are inherently bad or I don't believe in, you know, the goodness of people. I don't believe that that people will you know, will want to contribute to that. People are inherently selfish or nasty or, you know, self-centered. That's not the case. When you look at the proliferation of GoFundMe pages and how that's become, I mean, that's really become the way that people are able to pay funeral costs when their kids are killed by cops. When, you know, people like you're saying, Kevin Strickland gets out of prison and is given nothing, absolutely nothing. I mean, and yet there's more than a million and a half dollars raised because, you know, his case, there was one article written about him in one newspaper and he was on one ABC news segment and people heard about this horrendous thing happening that happens all over the country all the time. But they heard about it and said, I I have to do something. So I think you're totally right, Esther. I mean, that's such a huge ray of hope and such a, you know, incredible statement about humanity. Yeah, I mean, that's true, Nicole. That's true. I mean, it is really, really something to see so many people chip in and just want to do something, anything to try to, you know, in some small way, correct this unbelievable injustice. I mean, another thing to consider is that, you know, wrongful convictions, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but wrongful convictions don't really impact prosecutors' careers, right? I mean, you can, you know, the people who who put him in prison, the people who put so many innocent people in prison and, and were proven to have been innocent. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to be able to get a promotion in the prosecutor's office. That doesn't mean you're you're never going to be able to find a job in private practice making even more money. I mean, your your career is basically only determined by how many convictions you can stack up. If they're true, if they're false, if they're fraudulent, it doesn't really matter the way the current justice system is set up in terms of these, you know, lock them up mass incarceration prosecutors out there. And actually, Walter, to build on that, there are states out there that do have these compensation laws where you can get compensated if you're, you know, if you jump through all the hoops after you've been exonerated. Some of those states, at least some of them, won't allow you to file a civil suit. You know, if you get this compensation, you're not allowed to file a civil suit. And the civil suit is, of course, what would be the pressure from the outside to get those prosecutors, you know, out of that office or to get them disbarred or to, you know, have investigations into their past, into the case. So, I mean, this is just clearly a way for the state to kind of close the door on that. And, you know, speaking of the criminal injustice system and the, you know, and the way that justice is meted out in this country, which is to say that it's only when we really fight for it that we're able to find that justice. There was also an incredible and really beautiful story that happened this month Earlier this month, Henry Montgomery, who was the petitioner in the 2016 landmark U.S. Supreme Court case and decision, Montgomery versus Louisiana, Henry Montgomery was finally granted parole earlier this month, more than five years after the court ruled in his favor. The court heard Montgomery versus Louisiana in 2016 and said, yes, Henry Montgomery, you should be eligible for parole. But only now is he actually getting out. 
And his case, the reason this is important, his case is what made it possible for people who had been sentenced to life without parole as children, people who'd been sentenced to life without parole sentences. In other words, you will sit in this prison and die based on something you did as a child before 2012, it made it possible for those people to be able to apply for parole or for a new hearing to be released or resentenced. This was a small but very, very meaningful step. And the fact that this case, Henry Montgomery, got in front of the Supreme Court and was ruled retroactive such that people who had those life without parole sentences were able to apply for parole or a new hearing has meant that more than 800 people have been released since that date, since Henry Montgomery's hearing in the Supreme Court. So these 800, Nicole, just to emphasize, so these 800 were kids. They were children when they were convicted of a crime. Yeah. They were sentenced to life in prison without parole. Yeah. And now these 800, who presumably the ones who are probably pretty old yeah. in the most part, have been released because because of Henry Montgomery's case. And he's such a hero. And some of the background really demonstrates his heroism, his courage. It does, because when his case, Montgomery versus Louisiana, was taken up by the Supreme Court, Louisiana prosecutors got nervous and they offered his immediate release. They said, you know, real quiet, like they offered to his lawyer and to Henry, if if you drop the case before it goes to the Supreme Court, you know, before they hear it, you can get out right now. You can leave today. But instead, Henry Montgomery selflessly went forward with the case, knowing it would likely mean far more time behind bars. But knowing also that it could make these thousands of people who had been given this incredibly harsh sentence that only three countries in the world give, that is life without parole for people who are commit something as children, it might make those thousands of people eligible for release. And in fact, that's what happened. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of making a 2012 court case, which was Miller versus Alabama, retroactive. And like I said, now more than 800 people who were once sentenced to life without parole as youth have now been released since then. And there's thousands more who are still in the process of applying or who have been not allowed to get out on parole. But at the very least now, there are people, you know, everyone is is eligible to actually apply for parole and get that process. And now he is finally out himself at the age of 75. Incredible man. Henry Montgomery is a true hero. I mean, each and every one of us should just pause for a moment, reflect for a moment. Think about yourself. You're you're in prison for many, many decades. You have a court case, and the jailers come to you and say, look, all you have to do is drop this case, and you can walk out the door. You can be a free person. And Henry Montgomery said no. He said no because he thought they could win And it wasn't only about him. It was about everyone. I mean, what a hero. And again, we should be, you know, these are the names of the people we have to raise up. We have to recognize their heroism, their courage. Since we're talking about a lot of ridiculousness in politics and at the same time elevating the hopeful side of the struggle, certainly Henry Montgomery's example is a hopeful example that someone could be that strong while locked up, and as a consequence of his bravery, his courage, his sacrifice, so many people have been released and so many more will be released. Anyway, Henry Montgomery, we need to make sure people know his name. 
Right. I mean, he's just such an incredible figure. And when you compare the level of his bravery, the level of his sacrifice of five more years after decades behind bars, you know, when you compare that with the empty suits that we have in all these state legislatures who, you know, refuse to even look. I mean, this sentence, the fact that there are people who are 17 years and younger, even as young as 12 and 13, who can still be given life without parole sentences in the United States. Again, one of three countries in the entire world where that's possible. And the United States claims to be this great beacon of democracy. And yet children can still be sentenced to life without parole because often the people that we're talking about have committed murder. They have committed really heinous offenses. But, you know, what's so important is to talk about why that's happened. You know, they were in foster homes. They were abused. These, you know, really horrific circumstances that happen in the U.S. because of the just massive disinvestment in so many different communities and so many different neighborhoods. And the fact that this man can stand up and give of himself this way, this incredible way, you know, and there are so many state legislators who won't even support a bill like this, even though it's so basic to just make sure that everybody is able to at least to, you know, apply for parole or make sure that everybody, you know, who's under this sentence has access to being released, you know, decades later. It's just really remarkable. It's a class-based system. I mean, heinous murder committed by poor kids ends up with lifetime without parole. Heinous murders committed by politicians like George W. Bush or Dick Cheney or Donald Rumsfeld or, you know, what happened to the people in Afghanistan and Iraq or earlier the people in Vietnam and Korea. I mean, so many heinous murders committed by the government and murders committed based on imperialism, based on the desire to control other people and sold based on lies. And yet, the rich, the powerful, no matter what crimes they commit, they continue with their careers, they write books, they go out and make speeches and get, you know, in the case of George W. Bush, he's getting, he's pulling in between 75000 and $150,000 per speaking engagement, even though thousands of U.S. soldiers died or were permanently disabled because of a war based on lies, and maybe a million Iraqis maybe a million Iraqis, certainly hundreds of thousands of Iraqis dead, and the rich and the powerful face no punishment whatsoever. In fact, they're rewarded. Anyway, a class-based system. Let's turn to another, well, it's another hopeful story, Walter. In fact, a very hopeful story, this time in Central America, in Honduras. Yeah, really historic breakthrough for the left in Honduras. Ciamaro Castro, she is the candidate of the left-wing, main left-wing party in Honduras called the Libre Party, the Freedom and Refoundation Party. She has won the presidency. Electoral authorities are still counting up some votes, but the trend is clear. It's been clear from the beginning. Only truly massive fraud could possibly reverse the results. And it seems like Ciamaro Castro's victory was so overwhelming that it will, in fact, be not feasible for the right-wing authorities, the regime in Honduras, to steal the election yet again, as they've done on other occasions in the past. One of the reasons why this is so important is because that regime, because that right-wing government was installed by a U.S.-backed coup in 2009, this is a big victory against imperialism. Honduras has been run by essentially a coalition between the country's military and the National Party, the main conservative 
bourgeois political party in, in Honduras. Since 2009, when Manuel Zelaya, the democratically elected president, was overthrown in a military coup, Hillary Clinton bragged in her autobiography about how she rendered the question of Zelaya moot, meaning the question of the democratically elected president of Honduras moot during the coup, during the aftermath of the coup when she was the secretary of state. And that coup really initiated a right-wing wave across Latin America in the preceding 10 years from the late 1990s when Hugo Chavez was elected president of Venezuela up until that point. The left had been on the march in Latin America. This began a cycle whereby, you know, several years after that, you have the collapse of the Venezuelan economy as a consequence of the brutal U.S. economic war waged on the country. You had the election of Mauricio Macri as president in Argentina, the betrayal of Lenin Moreno in Ecuador. And so Ecuador, formerly one of the most left-wing countries in Latin America, joined the right wing. A similar process was repeated in several other countries and, and maybe most notably, was the election of Bolsonaro in Brazil, this right-wing fascist, all as part really of this big counteroffensive waged by the right wing that a lot of people argue started with the 2009 Honduras coup. And now that's been reversed. Ciamara Castro was one of the leading figures in the resistance to the coup, the United Front organization that was set up after the coup by people's movements, left-wing parties, was called the National Popular Resistance Front. So Castro was a, a leader of the National Popular Resistance Front. And her husband was Manuel Zelaya, the president who was overthrown in a U.S.-supported coup in 2009. So just like the left is on the march now in a sort of counter-counter-offensive in the last couple of years across Latin America, that now has reached Honduras, where it all began. So a huge victory for the people there. Of course, the work of transforming the country will be long and arduous. I mean, the drug trafficking capitalists, you know, underground capitalists really dominate the country. And in fact, Juan Orlando Hernandez, the National Party president, he was effectively named by the United States as a major drug trafficker as part of a trial against his brother, who is a major, major big drug trafficker and was convicted for doing so. So the left has their work cut out for it because, you know, all of these deeply entrenched powers still exist and they're backed by the United States, but a huge step forward taking place this weekend in the presidential election in Honduras. So important. Again, the pendulum swung one way, then another way. But it's not just a pendulum swinging. It's people struggling. So the push and pull of social justice movements playing itself out all over Latin America, a very, very encouraging development inside of Honduras. Talking about pushes and pulls and the pendulum shifting once this way and then the other way, certainly when, it, when we talk about Voting rights in the United States and basic minimum, you know, structures for bourgeois democracy. The struggle for voting rights has certainly been part of this epic struggle for, you know, more than a century inside the United States. And we know there's a war against voting rights, especially for black people and poor people in the United States. It's going on right now. And it's being accompanied, Esther, by an effort to undemocratically, and in spite of and regardless of whatever happens at the voting booth, shift power balances in states around the country. 
Right. You're right about the pendulum and the the back and forth, the swing, because really ever since the 1965 Voting Rights Act was passed, it's been under assault and recent Supreme Court decisions have really gutted it. And since the 2020 election has been so under attack by the right and the far right, Republicans around the country are taking these big steps to gerrymander their voting maps. It is being called the gerrymandering apocalypse happening around the country that in addition to, you know, just basic rights like the right to life, that the voting rights of people all around the country are being taken away by these gerrymandered maps. And the latest state to do this was Ohio. It wasn't in the South. And Republicans all over the country in these state legislatures are passing maps that basically eliminate competition at the voting booth and that will basically seal their minority rule for the like the next decade. And so if Congress fails to pass federal voting rights legislation that will basically wipe out all of the impact or at least reverse some of these and make these new voting maps illegal, there's just almost no way that progressives or Democrats or anybody not on the right or the far right can get elected on the state level and in Congress. Walter, as always, we're going to wrap up with the top stories from Liberation News, liberationnews.org, a socialist website. You're the editor. What's on your agenda? Well, if you go to liberationnews.org, you'll notice something different. At the top of the page, there is a new banner ad advertising liberationstore.org. Check this out. I mean, there's really beautiful designs there on hats, sweatshirts, t-shirts, posters, mugs. I mean, you name it, tote bags. This is a a new website that was just launched, liberationstore.org. Check it out. Another article that I want to highlight is titled Ethiopian and Eritrean Communities Lead No More Global Protests Versus U.S. Intervention. We were talking about this a little bit last week, these major demonstrations taking place in cities across the United States and cities around the world organized by activists in the Ethiopian and Eritrean diaspora communities to demand an end to U.S. support for the TPLF insurgency in Ethiopia, which is tearing apart the Horn of Africa. Check out this article, Ethiopian and Eritrean Communities Lead No More Global Protests Versus U.S. Intervention. Finally, I want to highlight an article titled, Brooklyn Street Renamed After Black Man Killed by Police. This is about the official establishment creation of Akai Gurley Way. Uh, Akai Gurley was a young black man who was killed by the New York Police Department. The community has come together to struggle and successfully demand that a street is renamed in his honor. You can read about how that organizing campaign happened and the ceremony here, Brooklyn Street renamed after a black man killed by police. And as always, go to liberationnews.org every day for daily updates, and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter at the top. All right, that's it for this show. We'll be back, of course, tomorrow with economist Richard Wolf on our Real Story segment, which airs on Wednesday night now with Breakthrough News and then as a podcast Thursday morning, we're going to begin a special series. It's going to be a multi-part series under the title, The Rise and Fall of the Soviet Union and the Lessons for Socialists. We'll be joined by author and activist Carlos Martinez in the first week, author 
Vijay Prashad in the second week. We're going to talk about the Russian Revolution, the history and development of the Soviet Union and its impact on global politics throughout the 20th century and why the Soviet Union fell and the lessons for socialists that we think are most pertinent. So we're very excited that we'll begin this series in the Real Story segment this week. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.